All right, good morning, church family. Uh, today we are going to begin our march through the book of Romans. Last week we did an overview of the entire book, and I won't be as long this week as I was last week, I can promise you that. Nobody believes the preacher when they say that, but we, we still do anyway. <laughs> uh, last week we did an overview, and what we saw was that the book of Romans, while it's a letter to the church that was at Rome, it also really serves as a treatise on the righteousness of God. And we saw how we can be made righteous and how that can only happen through justification by faith. We also saw in the book of Romans why it is that we can live out the righteousness of God through the process of sanctification. We also saw Paul reinforce God's amazing promises by revealing his righteousness to the nation of Israel. And then we saw that the book ends by showing us what, right, what the righteousness of God looks like on a street level. What does it look like when it's fleshed out and when we put it into practice? And today we're going to look at Paul's introduction to the book and his introduction to this church. Uh, if you remember, this church is made up of Jewish and Gentile believers. These people would come together as a church family, bringing very diverse backgrounds and very different ways of thinking. Uh, which caused some unique challenges in this church that Paul addresses throughout the letter. Now, as we consider the introduction this morning, we might be tempted to skip over it or read it quickly because it sounds similar in all of Paul's letters. You know, he starts pretty similar in all his epistles, but to do that would actually be to miss out on some rich theology. And this particular introduction is a little bit different. It's a little bit longer than some of his other ones because uh, he wants, remember, he's never been to this church. And so he's taking a little bit of extra time to introduce himself so that the church can get to know him and so that these people can see his heart and get to know him a little bit better. So as we get started this morning, let's read all of Romans chapter 1 so we can see these seven verses in their context and then we will jump into our study. If you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter number 1. Uh, if you don't have one handy, there should be one on the row close to you, the black hardback one. Feel free to use one of those. Let's read Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a, a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and was appointed to be the powerful son of God, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you, who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported around the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and telling the good news about his son, that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. 
That is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all, ungodly, against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what, was, through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their heart to sexual impurities so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what was been created instead of the creator who is praised forever amen for this reason god delivered them over to disgraceful passions their women exchanged natural sexual relations for natural ones the men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust one for another men committed shameless acts with men and received in their persons the appropriate penalty of their error and because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge god God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Father, I pray that your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. And Lord, while chapter one ends on a heavy note, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that it would be a proclamation of good news. That as we consider what Romans verses 1 through 7 say, that it would be a proclamation of healing and liberty. I pray that you would open our minds to understand and contemplate wondrous things from your word. Give us life and strength through your word this morning because we are hopeless without it. I pray that your word or that your church would delight 
in your instruction and that it would be planted in the good soil of open hearts so that we could be like righteous trees planted beside flowing streams, bearing fruit to bring you glory. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Right off the bat, we see that the Apostle Paul introduces himself, as he often does, as a servant. And I always find this challenging because when we think about the Apostle Paul, when we look back at his ministry, we hold Paul, rightly so, in high regard. I mean, he was a missionary of missionaries. He literally was the, the cause of spreading the gospel through much of the known world at, at this time. And yet he always introduces himself as a servant. He knew his Bible inside and out. He was close to God, but yet he's primar- the primary way he viewed himself was, I'm just a servant of Jesus Christ. The Greek word for servant is doulos. It literally means a slave. He's literally putting himself in this low, humbling position because that's what he considered himself in his relationship with Jesus. I'm just a servant for the sake of the gospel. My job is to serve for Jesus. But Paul also uses his title in this epistle as apostle. He introduces himself as a servant, yes, but also as an apostle. Now, the word apostle simply means a sent one or a messenger or one who is sent forth with orders. So it has a very simple definition, but the title apostle wasn't given to just anyone in the New Testament. In fact, it carried the weight and authority of a person who had seen the risen Jesus. In Acts chapter number 1, when they go to vote in a new apostle, we see that who they were voting for to become an apostle had to see the resurrected Jesus. And of course, Paul saw the resurrected Jesus on the Damascus Road. So when he introduces himself as an apostle, that title, that position, carried with it the weight and authority of a person who had seen the risen Savior. Now, Paul's ministry was unique and that he was largely called to be an apostle, a sent one who had seen the risen Savior, to the Gentile world. We see this in verses 5 and verses number 6. We also see this in Acts 9, 15. The Bible says in Acts 9, 15, But the Lord said to him, Go to this man, he's talking about the Apostle Paul, Go to the Apostle Paul, because he is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, first and foremost to Gentiles, also to kings and Israelites. Now, as Paul is introducing himself in verse number one, he says that God has set him apart for this, that he has been set apart for the sake of the gospel. God has chosen him for this. Paul's purpose in life was to spread the gospel mainly among the Gentile world. And Paul says this throughout the New Testament in Galatians 1, 15 and 16. He says, but when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul says this was my purpose in life from the moment I was conceived. When I was still in my mother's womb, Paul says, God set me apart for this purpose, to preach the gospel mainly among the Gentiles. God gave Paul a mission to do, and he joyfully became a servant to that purpose. Paul was set apart. Paul was separated from everything for this one goal, to be a servant for the sake of the gospel. Now, the word gospel means good news or good tidings. And and this time, when the New Testament was written, it actually was a very common word. 
the Greek word was a common term that was used. Good events related to the emperor were declared as good news for the people. Now, whether they were or weren't depended on the emperor. Uh, emperors weren't known to being favorable towards the common people in Rome. But a herald would come on behalf of the emperor to a town or province, and they would declare this good news on behalf of the emperor. So Paul is taking this term, and he's saying, hey, I have legitimately good tidings from our true king, Jesus. And that's where the word gospel comes from. Paul makes it very clear that this is not the emperor's good news. This is God's good news, and it's about his son, Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of God. These aren't mere words from an emperor. This isn't some dictator who's making this up. This is God's gospel. This is God's good news. And Paul says, I am a servant for the sake of declaring it. To drive home this point, Paul tells us that God's good news was promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, which shows us our first point this morning, the promise of the gospel. In verse number two, Paul says that he promised this beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, he would have been referring to the Old Testament. Paul is helping this church, and he's helping us see the continuity between the Old and the New Testament. God is not different in the Old Testament than we see him in the New Testament. The gospel was not this new religion that Paul made up. It was actually the fulfillment of an old one. What God had been preparing and promising for hundreds and thousands of years was now coming to fruition in Jesus Christ. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That was the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. So Paul is helping us understand that this gospel, that Jesus was buried and that he would raise again on the third day according to the Scriptures, was God's plan all along. And Paul helps us understand how we can see this throughout the Old Testament. Hundreds of years had gone by, but God fulfilled his promise to send the Messiah, and he fulfilled that promise through Jesus, whom Paul says in Romans 1, the gospel is all about. There's literally hundreds of Old Testament passages that we could look at that reinforce this, but I want to look at Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12. I love the picture that Isaiah paints for us of the Messiah. Verse 11 and 12 of Isaiah 53, the prophet says, after his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels." Aren't you glad Jesus willingly endured the anguish of the cross this morning? Paul helps us understand that Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day, was God's plan all along. The prophet Isaiah foretold that the Messiah would justify a bunch of rebels and willingly intercede for us. I love the picture that he gives us there. That's such an amazing reality. Paul is helping us understand, and he was helping these Jewish believers understand, and these Gentile believers understand that the gospel was not some new thing, but it was the fulfillment of a very, very old promise. And of course, Habakkuk prophesied that we would be made righteous, that we would receive God's righteousness through faith. 
He says in Habakkuk 2.4, but the righteous one will live by this, by his faith. The Old Testament is a foundation on which the gospel stands. Paul's helping us understand that it all leads to this. This is the moment of fulfillment. This is the moment we have been waiting for. Now when Paul says that this gospel was promised by God through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, this, isn't, this is more than simply a statement about the content of the gospel. It's also a reason we can believe it and trust it. Seeing how Christ has fulfilled prophecy after prophecy that was written thousands of years before his uh, birth strengthens our faith in God and in his word. So yes, this shows us that this was God's plan all along, but it also reinforces why we can believe it. When you consider the hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled and the statistical probability of those actually being fulfilled in one person the way Jesus did, it's mind-blowing. So what Paul is doing is he's helping us understand how the gospel was presented for hundreds of years, but he's also reinforcing our faith in it. That, look, you can trust God. And you can look at your scriptures, and you can see how Jesus was the fulfillment of all these promises. Seeing how Christ has fulfilled these prophecies strengthens our faith in God and our faith in his word. It takes away the kind of scary nature sometimes the Old Testament gets. We don't have to be scared of the Old Testament. It's an amazing reality. It's not like the Old Testament is, oh man, that's like kind of a different religion from the New Testament. No, it's all the same. And Paul helps us see the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he helps us see that it all points to Jesus. That's why Paul goes on in verse number 3 to say, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh, and was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. I love how Paul packs the whole trinity into these little verses. It's awesome. But these verses, verses 3 and 4, show us the power of the Messiah. The power of the Messiah. Paul tells us that Jesus was a descendant of David according to the flesh. This speaks to the humanity of Jesus. Jesus became a man. If you remember a few months ago, we looked at that when we were working through Philippians 2. But that reality that God became a man should continually blow our minds. Like he would have looked like any one of us. He didn't have a little halo <laughs> that you sometimes see in middle, uh, the Middle Ages paintings. No, he, he, he was a man. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Nortland talks about Jesus becoming a man and says, he woke up with bedhead. How many of you woke up with bedhead this morning? Some of you guys are like, I wish I could wake up with bedhead. Do you see the amount of hair I have? <laughs> he probably had pimples when he was 13. <laughs> I mean, he was a human being. He became a man. He would have never appeared on the cover of Men's Health. Isaiah says in a few verses earlier from Isaiah 53 that, he was just an average-looking guy. There was nothing beautiful about his outward appearance. He came as a normal man to normal men. He knew what it was to be thirsty, to be hungry, to be despised, rejected, and scorned, shame, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused. I mean, he knew what it was to be human. I mean, think about it. God <laughs> experienced hunger. God experienced what it was like to be lonely. Blows my mind. God became a man. 
But Paul also highlights for us that Jesus was a descendant of David. Now, this is important for a few reasons. This reminds us that Jesus' birth was also a fulfillment of prophecy. Because the scriptures, the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. We see this in Psalm 89 and Jeremiah 23. Those are a few among many passages that talk about this. But the Messiah was to be a descendant of King David. So these verses here in Romans 1 do more than just tell us about his humanity. They also show us how, they continue to show us how Jesus fulfilled prophecy. This was prophesied about hundreds of years before. And these verses also show us his deity. Now, we need to have a proper understanding of these verses because it can maybe seem like Paul is saying Jesus became the powerful son of God after his resurrection, but that's not the case. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the son of God when he came to earth. This was the purpose that Jesus had before the foundation of time. We've looked in several sermons how Jesus was God from before the foundation of time. He always was God. Jesus, like God the Father, had no beginning and will have no and Jesus was the Messiah. But Jesus had not fulfilled his mission as Lord and Messiah until after his crucifixion and resurrection. So Paul's helping us understand that at the resurrection of Jesus, he fulfilled his mission. Jesus' lordship over all the earth had not yet been brought to full actuality because sin and death still needed to be defeated. And in defeating sin and death, Jesus became the victorious Lord over all his enemies. Jesus exercised his authority and power as Lord when he defeated sin and death, and he has won a people for himself from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. Paul's like, that's my purpose in life, to go about and spread the gospel to those people so they could be a part of the people that God has won for himself. These verses don't refer to Jesus as becoming the Son of God. It refers to him exercising the role appointed to him before the foundation of the world. This is Jesus stepping into his role. This is Jesus exercising his authority. When Jesus conquered sin at his resurrection, he exercised his lordship. The empty tomb definitively proved that Jesus was the son of God. The resurrection definitively proved not only that Jesus was the son of God, but that Jesus was the son of God in power. I love that, how Paul says he is the powerful son of God, full of power. Jesus fulfills the promise God made that the prophets spoke about, and the moment of that fulfillment was his resurrection and ascension. When Jesus ascends to the Father, he sits at the right hand. Jesus is at the right hand of Father, and because he is at the right hand of Father, Jesus reigns in power. God tells Jesus, everything is yours. The Father is saying, everything that exists is now under your rule. The Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would sit at the right hand of God and rule in Psalm 110. So when Christ ascends into heaven and he sits down at the right hand of the Father, that's an indication of his complete work. And he is now exercising the authority of God the Father, ruling over all creation. That is the moment of his enthronement. And now he exercises the authority of ruler over all that God the Father has given to him. He exercises and he executes the will of the Father. So as Paul is beginning this book, he's beginning with the empty grave and the awesome display of the power of God that we see in the resurrection of Jesus. He's helping us understand Jesus is the fulfillment of all these promises, all these prophecies. 
Jesus is now the Messiah who is ruling at the right hand of the Father, and he's giving us this amazing display of Jesus' power. The resurrection, as writer Kent Hughes said, the resurrection verified with power that Christ's perfect life came from his divine being. This proves he was God. He was always God, but the resurrection made it so that it is no longer arguable. You can't argue with a risen tomb. You can't argue with an empty grave. It definitively proves that beyond any shadow of a doubt, Kent Hughes goes on to say, Paul wanted the Romans to know that his task in sharing the good news was to preach that Jesus, and according with the ancient scriptures, was the resurrected Savior. Paul is also showing us that this work was the work of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse number three, or excuse me, verse number four, and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Christ conquering death was according to the spirit of holiness. The Holy Spirit was at work in resurrecting Jesus. And Paul tells us that the same Holy Spirit now indwells in us. Paul's going to bring this to our attention later in Romans chapter 8, but in Romans chapter 8 verses 10 and 11, he says, now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Jesus, He who raised Christ from the dead, will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit who lives in you. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, that same Spirit of holiness now lives in each and every one of us. It's no wonder that in these few verses as Paul introduces himself, he moves from this awesome display of the power of the Messiah, he moves to the provision for the saints. Look at verses 5 through 7. Through him, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that phrase, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, because that speaks to the comfort we have as God the Father. It speaks to all the security that we have in our, in our Abba, in our Father, as God. But our Lord Jesus Christ also speaks to the power and authority that Jesus now has, that Jesus now executes to make that grace and peace a reality in our lives. And these verses show us the provision for the saints. Because of our powerful Messiah, we now have everything we need to live a life of holiness. Paul says it, says that it is through Jesus that he and the other apostles have received grace and apostleship for the ministry that they have been called. It's because of the grace of God that we are able to do the ministry we're called to do, Paul says. He said in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 8 through 10. Last of all, he's talking about himself. As to one born at the wrong time, he also, Jesus, appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, there's that provision. By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, Paul's like, I am an apostle. I don't think I'm worthy of it because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. 
As we saw in verses 1 and 2, the grace of God led Paul to dedicate his entire life to the gospel of Jesus for the glory of God. Paul says this is all for the name of Jesus. Paul's like, I'm not in this to make a name for myself but for God. He's like, as a Pharisee, sure, I was about making a name for myself. I was about all the the prestige that went along with that position. But now as an apostle, he's like, it's no longer about me. It's all about the glory of Jesus' name. Jesus saves us for the glory of his name. And what Paul is doing by giving us this snapshot of his purpose in life, Paul shows us the transforming provision we receive when we believe in the gospel. What does this snapshot mean? Well, Paul is going to unpack what the obedience of faith means throughout the rest of the book of Romans. Like, that's such a small phrase that contains so much. It takes the whole book of Romans to help us understand it. But it's worth saying here, as we consider this introduction, that it does not mean we obey in order to be saved. Paul makes that abundantly clear throughout the book. This obedience is the result of faith. Works does not produce saving faith, but saving faith does produce works. This obedience of faith springs from a wholehearted trust in Jesus, the powerful Son of God. And Paul says, look, our ministry as apostles is to help make this a reality in everybody's life. And the reason this could be a reality is because of grace. This obedience springs from grace when we believe the gospel. God has provided us a way to live a life of obedience in him. It's grace. We're going to see throughout this book that Paul loves to talk about grace. Grace is so amazing. It's what provides everything that we need to live for Jesus. Two-thirds of all the uses for the word grace in the New Testament are made by Paul. And I know we think, well, Paul wrote a lot of it, but if you add up all the New Testament, his epistles don't even include half of the content of the New Testament, but two-thirds of the use of the word grace is mentioned by Paul. And throughout the New Testament, we see there's so many different ways we can look at grace. It's God's undeserved favor. It's the power and ability to live and love like Jesus. It's God's strength when we are weak. Grace is the working of God in our lives that ultimately make us more like him. It's God's divine power working in you. Grace is our provision. It's how God provides us with the means to do what God calls us to do. Grace. Grace is the provision for the saints. Paul also adds a beautiful motivation in Romans 7, or excuse me, in Romans 1, verse 7. He says, to all who are in Rome, loved by God. Friends, sit with that for a moment. God loves you. You're here this morning and you are loved by God. If you are in Christ, the phrase loved by God waves like a banner over your life as your greatest reality. There's a lot of things that are true about us. Some things we like, some things we don't. But the most true thing about us that waves like a banner over everything else is loved by God. No truth could be more impactful in your life than the fact that you are loved by the creator of the universe. Paul also tells us that we are called as saints. To you who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. Friend, God called you. God chose you. God wanted you. And not because you're great, but because he is good. You are called as saints. One writer said, 
We are not called because we are saints, but we are saints because we are called. And as saints, we are set apart for holiness. Thus, we are in continuity with all the saints of all the centuries and are in continuity and unity with each other. God called you, and he called you to be a saint. In Christ, you are a saint. He says, called as saints. That's your identity, but that identity informs the way we live. Because we are made holy, Paul calls us to live holy. I love that word saint because it encapsulates so much of our Christian walk. This is what God has chosen and set us apart for. God has chosen us and set us apart to live and love like Jesus, to live holy lives that reflect his goodness and reflect his glory and reflect his holiness. It's amazing how this reality can simultaneously be humbling and also so life-giving, isn't it? It's, hum- it's humbling because we recognize we can never do anything to deserve it. It's humbling because we were the rebels that Jesus had to die for. It's humbling because it shows us our true condition apart from Christ, but it's so life-giving because it shows us that once we are in Christ, we are never lacking. We're never without anything that we need. The provision for the saints is grace made available to us because we believe in the good news, in the gospel. In conclusion, I love the last sentence in verse 7. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's such a simple greeting. Grace and peace to you. But it's so incredibly rich. God the Father, our Abba. Sometimes people struggle with looking at God as a father because they didn't have a good dad on earth. And they struggle with that metaphor. But I think the fact that we often struggle with it speaks to the fact that we understand what a good father is intrinsically. We know we didn't have a good father because we know what a good father should be. And God comes along and he says, let me meet that need for you. I'm your father. God the Father is giving us this grace and peace. And then Jesus as Lord who executes the will of the Father, who is powerful, who has all power in heaven and on earth, he said in Matthew 28. He is the one who is making that grace and peace a reality in our lives. It's not just this warm, fuzzy feeling that we hope somehow will work out. Jesus as Lord, as King over all creations, like I'm the one that's making this grace and peace a reality in your life. God the Father and God the Son are giving us their grace and peace. It's no wonder King David could say in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. I have what I need. That's why Paul says, grace to you and peace. I also love, it's so simple, but I love the causality we see here. When we believe the promise that this amazing provision is ours, peace inevitably becomes our reality. And like David, we can say, I have what I need. What about moments when we struggle to believe this though? God's given us provision for those moments as well. Hebrews 4, 16. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Grace is always available. Grace is always free. And grace is always enough because we serve a powerful Messiah. So church, let's hold on to our hope. Jesus, our Redeemer. He is the fulfillment of the promises of God. He is the powerful Messiah who has provided us an amazing provision. Paul, 
a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was the descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you, who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called the saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant us according to the richness of your glory. I pray that you would strengthen us with power in our being through your spirit. And I pray that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. I pray that we, being rooted and firmly established in love, would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of your love. And I pray that we would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with all the fullness of you. I pray that as your Holy Spirit awakens our heart to your love, we would believe that you have given us everything we need to be saints, to live a life of holiness, because the spirit of holiness that raised Jesus from the dead now lives inside of us. We ask you this because you're able to do above and beyond what we could ever ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To you be glory in the church and Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen.